I'm Kyle Samani, co-founder of Managing Partner and Multicoin Capital. I am excited to be panicking on the show for my third or fourth time. What's happening? Not too much these days. You really are fighting the cold. Yeah, I'm fighting the cold. And, Tell um, you what, if you smoked like you did back in college and had that cough. Oh, man, my voice would be oh, fantastic. You would be. Yeah, You'd be uh, in a million yeah, voiceovers. Right? The uh, Welcome to Panic with Friends. Today I have an old guest, friend of the show, third or fourth appearance. You know, I like to have guests on that are both friends and... Uh, know a lot more than me. Well, that's pretty much every guest, but you know what I mean. It's subjects that are uh, <laughs> exciting to me where I don't fully get them, so I tend to panic a little bit. You know, when I really get excited about something where, you know, recently it's cloud stocks down 50 60%, I don't get nervous. I know the demand's there. I, I have a context for uh, the markets. Uh, in crypto, I have no context. I have Kyle Samani. <laughs> I, I call him or I text him. I go, eh, should I be worried? He goes, no, up and to the right. I don't know if he says that, but uh, he always texts me back and tries to soothe uh, my nerves. But I was, we had Tushar on, which we're going to air before we air Kyle. And because, you know, Tushar hadn't been on before. But then I wanted to go back to back, not have them both on the same call talking over each other. But I wanted to ask a few different types of questions because it's a, it's a big firm now. So uh, let's quickly bring out Kyle. He's only panicked. He doesn't panic. So uh, let's bring Kyle out on to the show. Knut. Sounds good. Kyle. You know, normally I'm pretty calm and collected, uh, Howard, but whenever you call, I get real panicked. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I have one finger on the redeem button. Is that what makes you nervous? <laughs> 100% redemption. Oh, no. <laughs> Kramer has, and you've just seen it all. I mean, we could talk for hours about stuff I don't know that happens at your firm. I can only imagine because I've run a hedge fund and I've dealt with knuckleheads like me. Um, so I've been on all sides of the multi-coin, uh, not your business, but all sides of the multi-coin problems. And, and um, I can only assume the, the characters that have emerged in your LP base as you've gone from a few million to a few billion. can only imagine... Uh, one day that will make for a great show. Howard and Kyle talk smack about LPs. What do you say? One day. <laughs> uh, that, that may cause me to panic a little bit more than just about anything else. Yeah. So here we are. It's 2022. Life is good. You've had a great run. There's no doubt about it. One of the greatest runs I've ever seen. Uh, it's, it's a short run, right? It's four or five year run from the bear, the ugly bear of 2018, 19. Maybe 2000, part of, yeah, eighteen nineteen, And here we are, it's 2022, okay? Tell me what Kyle sees is the biggest change from the multitude of 50% pullbacks that you've seen over the years. What's, what's different maybe this time, good and bad? Sure. So I actually think the most important thing to understand about crypto markets is that the market structure itself is unlike any other market that has ever existed before. Correct. Across a number of dimensions. 
the most important of those dimensions is that like the exchanges or the amount of leverage or the, or the market contracts for the leverage. Although that's what a lot of hedge fundy type of people tend to focus on. The most important structural change in the market is that you have, you know, like the number of humans in the world who own an individual equity name is probably in the neighborhood of 300 million. Uh, Howard, you actually may have some data on that. I'm guessing it's like somewhere between 60 and 100. And, you know, it's much lower than you think, but that, that I will find that data. I'm, I'm guessing there's somewhere between 60 and 100 in the United States. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I can't imagine it's more than a couple hundred million outside of the United States. Right. Um, estimates today for crypto are somewhere between 50 and 250 million people own crypto. That that feels right to me okay. um, globally. And it's pretty obvious which one of those is growing at a faster rate than the other. The crypto number is obviously growing at, you know, I'd say at least three times faster, if not 10 times faster. Mm-hmm. And so, so that, that is a real, real, real large structural difference. Yeah. Um, and for most of these people, right. And like, as you go from the first 50 to hundred million people or so to the next three or four or 500 million people who are going to own crypto over the next several years, what you realize very quickly is those people are, are never going to own equities or like our, our equities will always be a small part of the portfolio. And actually crypto is likely to be a much larger part of their portfolios. Um, and how those people access information and how they think about what to buy or not to buy is totally different, right? The way, you know, approximately you can think about like learning about, I don't know, Twilio or Cloudflare or whatever. It's like, there's the quarterly call from the CEO and the CFO and the analysts. And then like some equity research people write these very, boring, dense, pretty hard to read reports. Yep. Many of which are not even accessible to the public, although some of them may, may be accessible. And then you contrast that with how people learn about crypto assets. It's like they see a guy on YouTube talking about it or a guy on TikTok talking about it or, or whatever. And you can argue that the latter is like worse than the former on like a function of education and, and risk and what and more open population. I'm actually not going to make any moral or values judgment about good versus not good. Um, I, I think that's actually the wrong way to think about it. Uh, the right way to think about it is how are these people accessing this information? Correct. And like, it's clear that it's just a completely different path by which information percolates right throughout, throughout the world. Yeah. Let me you go down a great path. So we started down this path that I didn't know, but this is exactly how I think about things every day. You know, and I'm grateful that, you know, Vinny introduced us and, and our networks expanded because I couldn't have imagined, but now I only imagine a world where when I met you, it was like, okay, I'm in crypto. It's kind of a schmuck insurance, as I told Tushar. It's like, okay, I'm selling all my regular crypto because I don't even understand my password and I'm going to put money with a few uh, funds. And I used to say, oh, it's going to be so easy for Robin. You know, I used to have this, you know, I don't, I'm not day to day Robin ever was. But, you know, with my seed investments in eToro and Robin, I'm like, ah, this is going to be great. Crypto will do all the work. You know, and it's so much harder for and FDX didn't even exist when I invested in your fund. So it's so much harder for uh, Coinbase to become Robinhood than a Robinhood to become a Coinbase. And here we are in 2022 with FTX raising at 32 billion globally and 8 billion in the United States and Coinbase at 40 billion and Robinhood at 11 billion. And I'm like, Robinhood really? And I guess I say this with with love, but like the world has flipped. Trading is a commodity. The actual buying of a fractional piece of stock is not only just a commodity, it's an awful experience. Not the idea of buying a fraction of share, the experience of trying to get information 
and the experience of all the different siloed places and the way people think about stocks is boring, you know, and that's the big change. And so I am, even though I'm 56, I am in the world that you speak of in that I own very few stocks relative to my private and crypto investments. Never would have predicted that in 2018. Um, yeah, it's it, information propagation is a, is a truly fascinating thing. And when you realize that the retail audiences are consuming it differently, they don't even think of equities as accessible to them. And crypto is just so much more fun because of Twitter, because of Reddit, because you go to go to the websites and click all the buttons and you get to understand how the things work. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and you see all the DeFi and you see the leverage and you see people talking about liquidations and it's, it's a really fun place to explore and learn about finance and risk. Yes. And it, it's at this point, like fairly obvious to me that, you know, within a several years, a lot more people will own individual crypto names than they will equity names. And in 10 years, I think it's going to be laughable to even compare those numbers. Right now, I think I own 22 stocks and I bet you I own 70 tokens. Now, that's partly because I'm in funds and everybody has a different opinion. But I mean, we're... Like we're talking about a flippening for a guy who grew up for 30 years talking about stocks. And so if that happened for me and I started late and I allocated so little of my time and money to that category, and that's what I talked about a little bit with Tushar, if we start today, the starting point, for as much as we say crypto hasn't delivered over 10 years or the people that say, oh, well, you know, what do we got other than Bitcoin? I don't think they really understand the rabbit holes and the, I don't know what you just called it. Uh, but just the burgeoning of this space. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's the ways by which you go about learning about the space are very different. Again, the way the places information flow, how the information flows, it, it all feels very different. It all feels much more like a game. Um, and it all feels a lot less mature and organized. All of those statements are obviously correct. A lot of people use that as a way to write it off, but you'd have to look past the and try and see the bigger picture here of what's really happening in capital markets, in capital formation, and investing around the world. So that brings me to composability. I was at your conference, and that was a big subject for you as part of your keynote. And and, and that is part of the Tushar talked about, like, we have all the pieces. You know, they may not all work yet. Uh, we may not know the true winners, but everything's there. You know, I was very, in hindsight, I look over 15 years of my fintech investment, and I'm like, okay. You know, if I was going to lay a, a, a fun eye and a mean eye on the thing, I was like, hey, man, you were part of like a, a real good onboarding of a next generation of investors and you were part of the education of them. But really, when, when it comes down to it, what did we get? We got like fucking Venmo, which is still great, obviously, but you got the knockoff in Square. You've got a lot of pipes built on top of MasterCard and Visa. Fintech feels just like just another version of composing shit on top of the railroads, which are Visa and MasterCard. So, so tell me how you think about composability and where we are. Yeah, so the point of a blockchain like Ethereum or Solana is basically to answer the question, who has how many coins um, or who has which NFTs? Those are the same thing, kind of, sort of. And then the other interesting things about that is some types of assets have mathematical relationships with other assets, most notably derivatives, obviously, right? You think about funding rates and liquidations, those kinds of things. Obviously, the same is true for options and then cross-collateralizing all of these things and making a, a financial market work with leverage. Um, so there's fairly obvious mathematical relationship between spot markets and derivative markets for financial assets. 
Um, and then the other type of assets or the NFT things. Today, the NFT things feel quite primitive. There's not really a meaningful mathematical relationships between NFTs other than like the floors for a collection, you know, tend to be about the same price. Uh-huh. Uh, although that's not like a strict mathematical definition. That's just kind of like a market thing that happens. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see more and more people in the same way that derivative markets came after spot markets. You're going to see the equivalent come for NFTs. I don't think they're going to be literally NFT derivatives. But I think that's actually not that interesting. I think it's going to be that there's NFTs that have other mathematical relationships with each other whether they use time as, as some variable or you chain them together or you assemble them in some sort of two-dimensional or three-dimensional array or something, but you're going to start to have pieces of state in the global system that have mathematical relationships to other pieces of state. And I talk about relationships of state because that is really what composability is all about, is to say, look, there's all of these things in the world. We know they have relationships to each other. Um, the only way then to technically implement, or I should say the only the most effective way to technically implement these things as cryptographic pieces of state on a public ledger is to basically put them all in the same ledger so that all of those things can talk to each other instantaneously. Um, and kind of like the big fundamental open debate in the entire crypto ecosystem right now is how much does latency matter in making these pieces of state talk to each other? Um, how much do these things actually need to compose with each other? And my, my operating theory is latency needs to be as low as possible and composability needs to be as high as possible. Um, the, the general history of software suggests you can always build higher order applications on top of existing things and that human demand for higher order functionality is insatiable. Um, and when you add just like a strictly creative lens on top of this through art and other creative outlets, I think that even that design space is even larger and, and, and more expansive. And so the number one thing to prioritize in the core design of the system um, is minimizing latency and maximizing composability. And that's why we're so bullish on is, is the architecture is designed precisely with that in mind. Now, did he, what's his name, the founder? Uh, Anatoly. So Anatoly, what made him special that he understood those two higher order problems at the start? Um, yes, but not in the way that in through the lens of which I described it. I think the lens through which I described it is probably the most meta lens you can think about. Uh-huh. The lens by which Anatoly used, uh, started at Solana was he was actually writing bots to trade on interactive brokers. Huh. Um, and he was like, he wanted access to order book data and he couldn't get it because he's not Citadel or jump or Virtu or whatever. Yeah. And he then looked at Ethereum and was like, ah, Ethereum is kind of the core right ID here, but Ethereum is slow. And so I'm just going to build the world's, you know, his goal was to build decentralized. It was asset. built around his financial mind, like solving a financial yeah. problem. He, he was like, I, he understood that latency, latency baby. Book, and you want to make yeah. the order book as open and as accessible as possible to anybody. Yeah, and the um, way I explain this to people from the 90s is like, remember, you won't remember because you were five, but they used to have a picture of, uh, what's his name, carrying the briefcase on CNBC. That was the equivalent of latency in the 90s when, what's his name, Fed Chairman Greenspan, they would have a briefcase cam with his Fed notes on Fed Day. Like, that is why I hate the stock market, why I say the stock market's rigged. When there's a briefcase and there's a TV show about the guy's briefcase, you were talking about latency. You are talking about latency in Anatoly in a way that makes it fair. Correct. He was, he was thinking about just a spot market. Yep. He wasn't even thinking about derivatives and obviously the, the, the close mathematical ties between derivatives and spot markets. And then certainly wasn't thinking about 
mathematical relationships between different kinds of NFTs. Um, but it turns out the core, for, if you're going to ever deal with any notion of value transfer in a financial market, the most important thing is actually latency yeah. and throughput, yeah. right? Like that is what makes financial markets work. I think what made me lucky about crypto early with Yoni was that it was all about Yoni was thinking about it from a financial in 2011 with eToro. So my my first explanation of Bitcoin in crypto before he was doing color coins, Yoni at the time he hadn't brought on uh, what uh, Vitalik was an intern for him and came up with Ethereum there was it made sense to me. It's like, okay, I hate fucking two days. I hate the fucking Alan Greenspan and whoever has the fattest pipe into the Fed wins. Um, this whole world is reverse engineered. It may not, you know, there's other rigs, there's other winners and losers, and there's other ways to play the game. And it may not seem fair to you because you're the last man in, but at least we flipped the whole goddamn thing on its head. I mean, that's the vision. That's the opportunity is make it go from closed and only accessible by uh, a handful of parties to completely open and accessible by anybody. And how does that affect, so let's just like your day, my day was fake complicated because, you know, you were always, you know, chasing an edge that someone you knew had. So you had to try to get as close to each pipe as you could to try and win just a daily battle of whatever battle you could do. In a world that like is so the beginning of composability starting, how do you, how do you set goals and, and, and what's the North Star right now for Multicoin? I mean, so our mission as a firm is to accelerate the adoption of self-sovereign software systems. Um, like I'm obviously a huge believer in the power of software and, and helping with information around the world and opening up access to stuff. Um, the big thing that's happened in the last 20 years has been access to information is increasingly intermediated by people who have vested interests that may or may not align with yours and mine. Um, and so my, my hope is that we can use these crypto systems to uh, preserve the benefits of the internet, which are you know open access to information, basically, uh, but do so in a way that preserves sovereignty uh, for the end users. Um, finance is part of that. NFTs are part of that. Um, stuff like Helium and Audius are part of that. Um, but but I think broadly, it's just thinking about uh, in, information dissemination and you, then the ability to use that information for either productive uses or for leisure uses. Um, but I want to make sure that, that we maximize human autonomy and sovereignty through that process. So did we cover composability the way you want it to, or anything else I should understand about how you're thinking about this going forward? I mean, I'd say the, the little rant I just went on was extremely meta um, oh. and, and, and very abstract. Mm -hmm. um, to, to make it more tangible, um, it's actually helpful to like look at some of the examples from the presentation I gave yep. um, in early December. Um, I don't know if you want to include a link, Howard, I will. to that. And that the, the back 15 minutes or so of the presentation are where it really gets into the last 20 minutes or so is kind of the examples, both concrete things that exist today and then some dreamy ideas of things we would like to exist in the future. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about composability in these systems, the ability to tie assets together um, in novel ways with social communications uh, on chain. It's, it's just super exciting. Uh, very, very cool design space. And so today we, we were in, I was asking earlier. So we're 2022, Bitcoin down 50% from its high, Ethereum maybe down 50% from its high. How, how is it different than the last, or is everything the same and you just, you know, it's a foregone conclusion that certain assets are going higher? How, how does it feel different, like from your LPs calling to the 
telegram streams to, you know, how is it different this time? Uh, I mean, so the last time we had a 50% correction was uh, nine months ago, between April and June of 2021. <laughs> uh, it was exactly 50% from the top to the bottom. Uh, in this case, it's been about 50 for Bitcoin and ETH, and Solana was maybe 65. I don't know. Like, I just, I just kind of don't care. People get, like, crusty, and some people yell and stuff. Uh, I'd say we have fewer LPs yelling at us now than we did in April, May, because they made a lot of money between then. But like, I don't know, people's time horizons are just too short. Um, I actually think the most interesting thing that's changed between then and now is I think that, I mean, I, I know there are multiple pension funds that are buying crypto directly. That is not just BTC and ETH, but they are buying other assets. Mm-hmm. Um, that absolutely has floored me. I did not expect that to happen, especially given that, the, you know, assets that are not BTC and ETH are, are clearly, are, are not clearly securities or not securities but there are gray regulatory stands that I assume would prevent pensions from buying these assets. That has proven to be false. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the absolute rapid shift among Silicon Valley into crypto. Uh, I know it happened to some degree in 2017, 2018, and a lot of the tourists went away. Uh, but I think this time they're not going away. Sequoia is, you know, YOLO long crypto. <laughs> Tiger is YOLO long crypto. Uh-huh. Uh, KOTU is, you know, just crazy YOLO. Um, and uh, I don't think that's going to slow down or change. Uh, I think a lot of the smartest technology investors in the world are YOLO long um, because they can see it. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not going to be another bubble and another, not going to be another crash. I, I'm not in any way predicting that that won't happen. But uh, huge amounts of Silicon Valley are, are now bought into that in a way that was just not true even 12 months ago. Which bodes well for composability, right? Like you got to get this stuff beyond... Well, like you said, art is at least a step beyond trading, although everybody's just trading in an open sea. We've got to get to that next thing. And I guess composability and uh, compute will matter. So today, what's the most exciting thing? Like, what's the latest exciting thing that walked into your office that says this is going to work? Is there something that stands out? I mean, yeah, there are, but I'm not really allowed to talk about them. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, just imagine but, no one's listening and you're on Joe Rogan. No. Okay. So, so let's talk about something that is exciting to me, and I've been buying it just myself in a wallet, Render. Talk a little bit about Render, what got you excited there, and how that works as a blockchain. Yeah. So, so Render, broadly speaking, falls in the bucket of like trying to decentralize parts of AWS. Um, a lot of crypto ideologues have been making hand-wavy notions about decentralizing AWS for, for many years now. Um, most of those claims are, are kind of silly um, and, and are not really tied, tied to reality. But there have been uh, a few teams that are doing very, very interesting things along that front. Render is arguably the most interesting. So the basic thesis for Render is that the major cloud providers gouge you uh, on renting GPUs to do computations. Um, this is definitely known to be true. Anyone who's tried to do this for ML jobs or for computer rendering jobs will tell you how much price gouging there is. One thing that I never, so I got introduced to Jules, who's the founder of Otoy and Render. And I'll get to Otoy in a second. But he pitched me and he was not a new idea. He said, Kyle, the vision for Render is anyone who has got a computer at home with a graphics card can rent out their graphics card to do a compute job for some sort of 3D rendering. Um, people have been playing with this idea since at least 2016. It was the first startup I'm aware of that tried to do this. And, and my immediate pushback was you can't really be cheaper than Amazon and Google. You, you don't really have a, a major source of cost advantage. 
uh, because of just the, you know, they're buying with such scale that they're getting bulk discounts and that their electricity cost is much lower um, because they obviously you know, know how to optimize electricity costs. And through my diligence on render, I learned a couple of interesting things. The first is that NVIDIA engages in first-order price discrimination against data centers, specifically or cloud providers. You can go buy an NVIDIA 3080 or 4080 or whatever the new top-of-the-line card is for about six or $700, um, which has, I'm just going to say, 100 of, of compute power. NVIDIA will not sell that card to Amazon or Google or Rackspace or Microsoft or IBM or whatever. Um, they will sell them uh, the uh, workstation brand of cards, which I think are called Quattro, or maybe they have some other name, I forget. Um, that card will have, let's say, 120th power, but it will cost seven times as much. And then NVIDIA does this because they can. Um, AMD and, and ATI have become kind of sort of irrelevant in the graphics market, and they're a monopoly, and so they just engage in first-order price discrimination because they can. Um, and so once I, I understood that, that that was there, that really unlocks this arbitrage where consumers at home on their consumer-grade cards with more expensive electricity can actually offer better service. The other thing that we learned was that there's just not enough supply of graphics cards out there, right. um, at least in, in the data centers. Right. These jobs are very lumpy, right? So someone will come in and do a machine learning job, and that'll take two weeks to run, and that'll just eat up a huge percentage of the load for that two-week time, and then those guys will go away. And so you, because of the lumpiness of this all, it, it's also just been very difficult to, to manage supply and demand. And so the render network by basically saying, look, there's all these NVIDIA cards laying around all over the world. You know, we can leverage these to build um, a, a truly decentralized network of, of nodes, and we can do this for, you know, 10 to 20% of the cost of Amazon. So that's kind of the core of thesis part number one. And the core of thesis part number two is the, the team that is building the render network um, is also actually the team that spun out of a company called Otoy. Otoy is 12, maybe 13 years old. Uh, founded back in 08, 09, 10 timeframe. The founders are a guy named Jules Erbach, who's the CEO of Otoy and, and kind of runs Render. And the other founder, who is less well-known, well, well, is less well-known to be a founder of Otoy, although he's much more well-known publicly, is Ari Emanuel. Oh, wow. Of Endeavor. Uh, Ari, you know, co-founded uh, Otoy with Jules because he understood the importance of 3D rendering for movies. Uh, back then, you know, he was on the board of, of Otoy and has been involved since day one. Um, today, Otoy makes software that uh, is used to make 3D renderings for movies. Every major movie studio in the world uses Otoy software. Their software is called Octane. Um, Disney, Paramount, you name it, every major movie studio uses their stuff. Octane is today what most universities teach for 3D graphics. And uh, you know, the, the market share estimates we put together are that something like 80 to 90% of new digital artists are trained primarily on Octane. So they've been doing this for a really long time. They are the, the leading marketer software for GPU rendering, and uh, they obviously control Octane. And so the theory here is they will, over time, funnel the spigot of Octane, you know, of designers designing using Octane, and, and point that increasingly away from Amazon and Google and increasingly towards the render network. That is so cool. So it could just be infinitely large. Yeah, that's right. That's that's it's great. It's very rare to be invested in a crypto thing where weirdly the demand side is solved. Typically in crypto, you have the opposite problem. You use tokens to incentivize supply to show up before demand is there. Uh -huh. um, and this this one actually is the opposite problem, um, which is actually quite compelling. And so, but this is where the structure of everything matters. It's not a guarantee that render as a token economics is structured properly to benefit from this, or or do they think? You know what I'm saying? Like, if the bubble's reversed, is is how you structure the render offering and token? 
doesn't all that now also factor into it? It's not like a guarantee that the render token increases, or is it? Yeah, so the render token as it exists today uh, is a 2017-era shitcoin. Um, they did an ICO in October <laughs> of, of 2017, oh, uh, okay. back when, back when uh, a lot less was understood about how to design a token system to capture value. Good, this is um, interesting. Okay, so this was an original shitcoin. This was an OG shitcoin. OG um, shitcoin. <laughs> OG shitcoin. Uh, and, uh, you know, as part of our due diligence on, on Render, you know, once I kind of put all this together about Octane and about NVIDIA's pricing and everything, we were quite excited about the core thesis. And then we started looking at the token, and the, the token was has not changed in all over the last four years. And uh, the, the Render team is just like not, I wouldn't say, been plugged into DeFi and NFTs and all these things that have been happening. Um, they've been focusing on growing their market share with design and then trying to build out the basic infrastructure to make the render network work. They were not token economics people. So we came into this um, and we said, look, guys, the vision here is quite compelling. The thesis makes a ton of sense. Your token system is broken. Um, why don't we help you redesign it? Um, and so we did that. Uh, and they have, uh, I believe, recently announced or are about to announce uh, a new token model that we helped them design. Along with that relaunch of the new token, I mean, if you own existing render tokens, you'll own the new render tokens, there'll be a one-to-one mapping and carryover. But as part of that transition, they're also transitioning over from the Ethereum network to the Solana network. Oh, Um, this is like private equity meets Goldman Sachs meets Austin Powers meets... Wow, this is cool. This is what had to be done. So from the shitcoin comes the birth of... Because this is what I'm trying to explain to people. This is where I start getting excited. There's some heavy lifting that has to be done to align the token or the value creator that everybody can point to, to the economics that make best sense for everybody. So that's what the restructuring had to entail, right? Because without restructuring that, you got nothing, you know? Exactly. And so I actually wrote a lot of the kind of original pieces on how to redesign token systems to capture value back at the end of 2017 and the early part of 2018. Hmm. Um, and, and we've kind of, obviously, we've watched a lot of experiments play out in the crypto markets over the last three or four years um, and have helped kind of the render team incorporate all of these learnings in a new token design. And that new token will launch on Solana and you will be able to port your Ethereum tokens over one for one. That is pretty cool. And so then it's a line that is, as the, as the supply side happens, now you can get some true fundamental. Because I was thinking about this with GRT, because if it's the Google of blockchains where it's like organizing all this data, then theoretically, is their token design wrong? Because theoretically, shouldn't shouldn't it be moving in a different direction? No, gra- graphs, graphs token design is definitely very sophisticated and, and thoughtful. It's just different than renders, um, but, but aligns for how the system works. Some graph designers and the curators and the indexers and on making that multi-sided marketplace work. What, what, what part of the industry gets you most excited? Because you were there at the beginning, you have a small amount of money, you, you and Tushar come up with a side pocket idea, and you see success with that investing. Now we live in a world where there's all this liquidity, but all this venture. What part excites you the most? Um, I mean, like venture, I'd say, is always you know, sexier and like fun. It's, it's, it's by definition new ideas in an earlier stage, which means they're riskier, and risk is fun. <laughs> so in, in that sense, like that, you know, that's the exciting stuff we do. But all, all the venture stuff we do, um, it helps inform how we think about managing our, our larger liquid portfolio as well. Um, 
Today, I spend the majority of my time helping some of our portfolio companies. We made a number of pretty large investments at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. I think going to be kind of major pivotal pieces of, of technology in the ecosystem. So helping those guys and then really trying to flesh out the Web3 infrastructure stuff like uh, Render and some other names that uh, are not yet public. And what does Web3 mean to you? I asked Tushar the same question. We hear everybody arguing about it. What is Web3 to Kyle? Uh, Web3 is about enabling users to initiate transactions of some form, financial, computational, whatever, uh, bounded by cryptography, coordinated using an open ledger. Got it. And in this pullback, what are the go-to that you think the Amazons that come out of this? Who are the ones that seem unshakable right now? Anything can happen, but what are the things that are the blue chips to you? Solana, Helium. Those are our two biggest positions, have been for a long time, continue to be, or outrageously bullish, both of them. Got it. And then a couple more questions for you. Um, Bitcoin. So that last, you're right, there was a 50% correction. It was, I remember it was China. I wasn't scared by that one because, I don't know, China just seems to be making bad decisions, but they're making decisions for China. So who cares? Like, once you know they're making decisions for China, that makes everything they do seem easier to me, right? Like, okay, fuck them. Just take them out of all my models. In a world where it's not just about Bitcoin mining, but compute, can you explain to people the difference? When people think about mining, everybody just thinks about Bitcoin. In a world where Web3 explodes or continues to explode, what's the difference between Bitcoin mining and compute? Bitcoin mining is not productive. Um, Bitcoin miners are literally guessing random numbers and hoping that they find the next Bitcoin block. Uh, it doesn't produce value for society. Stuff like Graph, Render, Arweave, uh, some of these names that I can't quite describe yet. Uh, the point of them is to leverage latent compute resources, storage resources, bandwidth resources all over the world to provide infrastructure that's globally available that end developers can leverage. Bitcoin mining doesn't even pretend to be productive for society. And yet that's all you hear about. Then no one really understands who will be the big winners of compute. Can Amazon be a big winner of compute? Tushar says no, of course. How should people think about that? I don't think Web3 displaces Web2. I think that's the wrong framing. I agree. Web3 complements Web2 right. in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, I don't think Amazon, like EC2, is going to be like a large provider of compute resources. Um there will be some new classes of applications that will aim to be decentralized for some purpose. That purpose could be a function of censorship resistance. It could be a function of trust minimization. It could be a function of permissionless access. It could be a function of enabling ownership of the resources as a core part of what makes the service itself useful or valuable. Um, there's all kinds of different properties of decentralized systems um, and different applications can leverage one or more of those properties. Um, the, Crypto purists only recognize one and that they don't think about these other properties correctly. Um, but you can design different decentralized systems with different properties to achieve different outcomes. Um, and I think all of those kinds of apps will bias towards using decentralized infrastructure when and where possible um, in order to maximize those core properties of those new types of applications. Awesome. I saw that, and your Twitter feed's great, Kyle Samani. We'll link to all this, Kyle. But um, pretty interesting answer because I'm fascinated by contextually trying to understand things. So someone asked you the best analogy to understand blockchains competing with each other. And you said the cloud. So walk us through that, how people should think about this. Because if Web 2 and Web 3 work together 
And then at the highest level for me, that means just more Apple, more. If I was going to pick between Amazon, Apple, Google, Shopify, and Facebook, I'm Shopify, Google, Apple. You know, those are my three out of five. So in a world where blockchains, you know, you hear blockchain, 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 and you mentioned cloud, how, how should people think about this? Um, so blockchains are definitively not front ends in any way. And a lot of analogies people throw out there compare them to things that are directly user-facing, which is just like egregiously incorrect. Correct. Um, blockchains compete for developers, and they only compete for developers. Um, in that sense, then operating systems are kind of sort of okay of an analogy. Okay. But the difference between an operating system and a blockchain is that a blockchain is a single global thing. Um, an operating system is a thing that you install on everyone's computers. Right, so in an operating system, you have a lot of small instances of the same thing. A blockchain is one large instance of a single thing. And so through that framing, the kind of closest comp is a cloud provider. Obviously, that cloud provider is not a single monolithic thing. Obviously, they have lots of different services, and you can spin up lots of subservers and whatever in them. But conceptually, it's a, a single logical thing, um, and uh, there's a small number of them, and they can be for developers. And perhaps most interestingly, Latency matters, right? Mm -hmm. If you're building a whatever app that's got 500 microservices, if you put those 500 microservices on 500 different computers and 500 different data centers around the world, latency is going to be horrible in your application as all those microservices have to talk to each other. You want to collate those microservices because those things need to talk to each other, right? And you want that to be measured in nanoseconds, not in milliseconds. And so you put everything in the same data center for that reason. Um, That doesn't mean your entire application has to live necessarily in a single data center, but it generally, you get some conglomeration effects of, of you know, housing large sets of functions that are related to each other in the same place. Um, coming back to my earlier rant on composability, um, and, and specifically because these crypto things are primarily useful for financial markets, which means you need to have low latency and high throughput. Um, right? So kind of the analogy is you want to put the entire app in a single data center, or in this case, in a single blockchain. Dude, this was awesome. I mean, in a world that I'm loaded to the gills in, you know, full disclosure, I've sold a lot of Robinhood, you know, post-IPO, doing a little bit equally every month because um, I was overexposed to them in Toro. In a world where I've been buying FTX for the last two years, both token and I think probably as a private investor with you, thank you, we, we've known, and through Sam and Team Investing in StockTwits, um, is it a Coinbase, FTX, and Binance world right now? Are they running away with it? Binance and FTX are running away with the market. Everyone else is losing relevancy. I mean, obviously, Binance, because he was early and bold. How did they do it? How did, how did FTX do it so fast? What do, what do you think his special skill is? So Binance today just owns retail outside of the United States. Okay. And, like, to an incredible degree. Incredible, yeah. Um. The, the reason for that is, is a function of they generally out-executed their peers, and also their peers, in many ways, shot themselves in the foot or their government shot them in the foot. Good point. There was a combo. <laughs> Good point. And, and, that's, and not to be mean to those founders, there was a lot of ways to shoot yourself in the foot. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I mean, particularly Wobi and OK were historically Binance's largest competitors, and um, the Chinese Communist Party has handicapped them yes. substantially. Yes. So B- Binance succeeded... I'm not solely because of that, but that was a serious thing that helped them. Um, Coinbase succeeded in the United States primarily by being just first. 
Yeah. I mean, that was really all they, they had to do. I, um, I give them, they've been bold. With Coinbase Ventures, I think it's brilliant. We're right or wrong long-term to keep them relevant for as long as possible. Using their balance sheet to invest in the future has been genius. Um, and then, you know, FTX, their initial rise to prominence was as a function of being the best place to trade der- with derivatives and leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that attracted the power users of crypto and it attracted all of the market makers who wanted to trade risk with each other and offload risk. Um, as the product continued to evolve, as more people noticed them, they just realized this is just a better and better trading venue. Um, and that's now helped them become, I believe, they're number two or number three exchange globally today uh, after Binance. Um, it's just like they just built the best product. Anyone who trades with leverage, it's not even a question. FTX is where you go. Uh, now, unfortunately, you can't really trade with leverage in the United States. Um, as a retail person, it's pretty hard here. Um, so FTX is, is competing primarily for spot markets. Um, and, you know, the primary thing they're doing, let's say, over Coinbase on that front uh, is, uh, A, brand presence through the kind of partnerships with folks, and B, fees. Um, Coinbase's fees are like something like 85 or 90% lower than Coinbase's fees. Um, and, and retail is starting to understand that. And so uh, FTX is starting to win retail from Coinbase in the United States. I think the thing that will completely change the game is when FTX US uh, launches derivatives and specifically perpetual contracts. I know Robinhood has certainly thought about this a lot over the years, has been unable to do it. Yep. The closest they've gotten is options. Um, options are an interesting form of leverage, but they are just much harder to understand um, and quite frankly, much harder to use and profit from yep. than futures or perpetual contracts. Um, FTX US acquired um, LedgerX, which had basically all of the licenses necessary to launch. Futures and perpetual contracts, um, and Sam has made it crystal clear that FTX US will launch futures and perps in the United States for retail, uh, and they will do that not just for crypto assets, but for all assets. Yep. Um, I fully expect in 12 months FTX is giving uh, Robinhood, Charles Schwab, eToro, um, Morgan Stanley, E-Trade, everyone to run for their money as they offer interactive brokers the best platform for trading crypto and equities with leverage all across margining. That doesn't exist today, and FTX is very obviously going to be the first one to do it. Yeah, I've been lucky just to have an ear at Cena and some of the biz dev people there. You know, they, they took my calls early and just had an open mind to how I looked at the world because I don't see the world through derivatives or, or leverage. I see the world through a goofball. Larry David meets finance. But, you know, most kids don't need all that other stuff um, and FTX just continues to, well, it's so early in the game, a lot can go wrong, but just continues to blow my mind in terms of the speed. And I think a lot of it comes down to in the end is that they came from it from a world of doing the trades themselves, you know? Yes. I mean, the core of the company is a bunch of traders. Domain experience matters. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the most important things about FTX is FTX, I think, very much views itself as a financial services company. Coinbase, I think, has always been kind of confused. Is it a financial services company or is it a technology company? Brian Armstrong actually wrote a media post about this probably a one or two years ago, uh, acknowledging this, this tension. Um, and was said very clearly, we are a tech company. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always found that to be incorrect. I think of these things as financial services companies first. Yeah. And uh, I think the DNA at FTX very much reflects that. Will, do you think they get into the sports betting business? I saw the ads all weekend, 30 to 1, 56 to 1 parlays. Like, that's how kids think. Will FTX or one of the, or Binance buy, will they end up buyers and in the sports betting business or no way? I think FTX is quite likely to enter that market in a forceful way. Yeah. 
All right, really exciting. I, I've taken enough of your time, my man. Um, I really, it's just been fun to not just uh, learn, but make a little money on your incredible run. In looking at your two big bets, Solana's a bet on, I get it, the backbone, and Helium's a bet on a huge market with a different business model, so they're completely different bets, right? Yes. And uh, how many positions overall in the portfolio? Our hedge fund has six positions that matter. Uh-huh. And then venture... Our venture funds, obviously, are, are, are more distributed than that, but... Wow. So um, very focused portfolio. We like to pick things, and then we like to do... The hardest part of what we do is not selling them. Yes. That's why I'm grateful, because I would have sold... If you had given my Solana at 20, I would have, I would have sold it at 15. So I appreciate that, no matter what the outcome is. It's been a hell of a ride. Thanks for taking the time with our audience. Doctors loves this stuff. Kyle Samani, thanks, my man. Awesome, Howard. Appreciate the panic. One more time. See you, buddy. Bye. Knut. Hey. What? Can you imagine living in that brain? It's it's incredible. I mean, I was just going back and forth. I understood 50%, which is up from 10%. <laughs> you know, I'm like, so get it. Like, when you think about their big bet, Salon and Helium. Right. Massive. On Solana, it's everybody's building on Solana, and it's built from the ground up to be faster than Ethereum. And built, he was trying to solve a financial problem, which is really all crypto is right now, a financial problem. It'll get bigger, and Solana will have its problem. Second business, Helium, which is kind of a restructure, reorganize, after the biggest mark in the world, of the most centralized companies we hate, you know, communication, Verizon, AT&T, with a completely new business model. So those things could grow for 100 years. So like you said at the end, very important. It's not just be right, but if you're right, stay right. Don't overcomplicate things. So this is just one of the luckiest investments in my life where um, not only did I find the right people and invested with them, because that's about the only right thing I did, but I just stayed out of the way. Yeah. And I will admit along the way to pushing the red button a few times, and Kyle's just accepted and said, good, go, move on. Uh, de-risk, you know, you, you know, there's these periods where you – I am not running, people ask me, when do you sell? When do you do this? I'm not running the day-to-day of that firm. So when I have an opportunity to get some liquidity, I take some. One thing I've learned is if you don't know anything about something, let the professionals do the job and stay the hell out of the way. Well, and pay them a fair wage. Exactly. This country, I, I was listening to Aziz Ansari, a funny comedian. Go listen. He has a 30-minute Netflix special up where he just shows up at Comedy Store. And he says, you know, the world's just a little shittier. And, and it was funny because it just is not, he was not even complaining. He's like, we just don't want to pay people. We're just so used to free, freemium, and you get what you pay for. And people aren't showing up for their jobs. You know, whether you go to your ski vacation, you can't get people on the mountain to like work the lifts or you go to the comedy store and you can't get waiters. Um, we forgot about that. And, you know, this is all part of why all these new business models are emerging. Everything has to be reimagined. And uh, it's really a fascinating time. Uh, that's the other side of panic. Uh, so I'm excited always to talk to Kyle. Very optimistic. Uh, stayed pretty humble. What do you think? Not cocky. No, not at all. Yeah, every time I talk to him, shows up on time, ready to go on the podcast, loves talking about his sector, gets excited about the founders, loves the technology, and is in the game. I mean, it's, for me, it's kind of like a spot check. You know, are they on the game? Kyle and Tushar are on their game. All right. 
You are listening to Panic with Friends. This is Howard. You search my name, Howard Linton, on Spotify, Apple, Google. We got it everywhere. You subscribe, search my name. You get a podcast once a week, and we talk to investors, traders, entrepreneurs, founders, sometimes now celebs. And uh, really appreciate you forwarding it to a friend. Old episodes, they're kind of evergreen. Share them. Let's get more subscribers. It's working. We are having fun doing this, and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks, Knute. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.